Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. No, I didn't think I was going to hit that high note either. Uh, So that was the Lambeth Walk, or my appalling rendition of it, which, as we uh, all know, is a song from me and my girl. It's because we're kind of going on a Lambeth Walk today, not to Lambeth Walk, but close by enough that it caused me to look up the history of the song. And uh, sometimes you just stumble upon a thing of beauty. This song really has some history, and it's kind of hilarious as well. So it came out in uh, '37 as part of a film, and it was a, a huge hit. Everybody was doing the Lambeth Walk. There were big bands version of it. Duke Ellington covered it. Um, in 1939, a member of the Nazi Party drew attention to it. He said that uh, the Lambeth Walk, which had become popular in swing clubs and uh, in Germany, was Jewish mischief and animalistic hopping, and uh, it seemed to threaten Nazi ideals. And his antipathy went further when, in 1942, Charles A. Ridley, uh, of, the, of the Ministry of Information, uh, put together essentially a cut-and-paste propaganda film, the Lambeth Walk Nazi style, where he put together video footage from Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will and set it to the Lambeth Walk. <laughs> had them all dancing. Apparently Joseph Goebbels wasn't very happy about that and put him on a Gestapo list for elimination if Britain was defeated. But it gets better than that. I don't remember a line of poetry being used as a newspaper headline apart from maybe Up Yours, Dolores, which kind of stretched the poet much. But get this, October 1938, the uh, Lambeth Walk is all over the place and the headline in the Times was While Dictators Rage and Statesmen Talk... All Europe dances to the Lambeth Walk. It is the 16th of May 2015. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. I'm going to start with a confession. I'm not proud of this at all. Uh, Until today, I had no idea that there was any such place as Lambeth North Tube Station. I don't know how I've managed to poodle around town 
this long without uh, knowing that, but I do now. I've just popped out of it and discovered at the top of the steps Diane Burstein, who's going to be our guide today around the uh, Lambeth and Waterloo area. Hi, Diane. Hi, and one of the reasons I've said let's meet at Lambeth North is because Waterloo Station has so many confusing exits, but also so that I could take you along to Westminster Bridge Road, so you turn right when you come out of the Tube Station, and there across the road is a reddish-brown building with a terracotta frontage, the date 1900 on the building, and this was the entrance to a station from which a lot of people took their last ever journey because this was the entrance to the Necropolis Railway which would take you down to Brookwood Cemetery in Woking in Surrey. Now the Necropolis Railway had been going for some time since the mid-19th century but because they were expanding Waterloo Station in 1900 it was decided that they would rebuild the station and it actually got a smaller frontage and although the station went during World War II there was wartime bomb damage and after the war it was decided not to reopen it again we still have the entrance frontage to that station which has been used as offices actually there's a to let sign up there at the moment so uh, you never know you could uh, be the next people to be occupying this building but the station itself with its platforms have long gone haven't been around since world war ii apparently if you go to brookwood cemetery you'll still see remnants of the platforms there and the station buildings they turned into restaurants because they had two platforms they had one for the non-conformists and non-believers and then they had another one which was for the church of england people who would be transported to the cemetery because brookwood like the cemetery is a bit nearer to London, like Highgate and Kensal Green. They were non-denominational to a certain extent, so people of all different religious backgrounds could be buried there. But you usually at these cemeteries had one non-conformist chapel and then you would have another chapel there which would be for members of the Church of England and they made it very private so the people who were on nearby platforms who were travelling out of Waterloo wouldn't be able to see onto the platform of the Necropolis Railway and also the people who were the mourners they wanted to have a bit of privacy so they had special rooms where the mourners could go while they were waiting for their trains so that's a real little bit of secret London there. Just astonishing. Speaking of uh, cemeteries and graveyards, I was looking uh, just earlier at a, a blown-up map of London in, uh, I guess it would be the mid-1700s. If you want to have a look, listen, by the way, it's uh, on the hoarding outside a crossrail excavation up at uh, Liverpool Street right now. If you wander out of the station via the McDonald's exit and uh, head back to, I think, Finsbury Circus, that kind of direction, you'll pass it by. And, of course, it's common sense that you would put your cemeteries at the edge of your city. And if you look at this map, you discover so many of the cemeteries that were at the edge, uh, now completely consumed by our conurbation. But they were indeed at the edge, as was Tyburn. And uh, when I looked at this area, well, it, was, it, it seemed semi-rural. Uh, George's Fields seemed to take up an enormous amount of space in this area. And then there were these mysterious things called uh, tenter yards. Yes, well, tenter grounds, you didn't just have those here. You had them all over the place. And, in fact, you're talking about Liverpool 
Street, there's still a street there which is called Tenter Ground and that is where they used to hang up cloth to to dry on frameworks and they would have hooks to secure the cloth. So those would be the tenter hooks and that's where we get the expression to be on tenter hooks. So that's what the tenter grounds were for. So when people were weaving and they were hanging out their cloth to dry. Now we, we have tenter hooks, there's that idea of kind of waiting um, but with some sort of nervous anticipation. Was it a particularly precarious thing to do to hang your material up? Well no, it wasn't that it was precarious to hang the material up but the material would be stretched out onto these hooks so I suppose the idea was being taught, oh. being, how would you say it? Yes, to surface tension. That's right, yes, that's where it all comes from. Well, we're on Westminster Bridge Road. There's no obvious sign of Westminster Bridge anywhere close by. We're on the corner of Westminster Bridge Road and Lower Marsh. Now, a fairly quiet uh, street, although we're recording on the weekend. Which direction are we going to be heading in? Well, we're going to head along Lower Marsh and we're going to be walking towards a road called The Cut, which is quite famous for its theatres. We've got the old Vic and the young Vic, and I'll talk a little bit about these when we get here. But as we're walking along Lower Marsh here, you'll see on the left-hand side there's a market stall here and this used to be a very busy, thriving market street from the mid-19th century onwards. Now, you still do have a few market stalls if you come here on a weekday, but like a lot of our markets today, the Lower Marsh Market is mostly given over to food stalls, so the office workers in the area can come out and get their lunch. And there are only a few stalls here today, but this used to be really busy, and like all London's markets, it used to be at its busiest on a Friday night because that was the day when people got paid in cash, you got a pay packet and you wanted to go out and buy your food and your provisions. So today you'd find stalls here mostly at lunch times but in the past you would have found the market stalls here in the evening and they'd have little lamps on the stalls and it would all be extremely busy here. And Lower Marsh Market, it's name is very important for the area because Waterloo didn't used to be Waterloo. At one time Waterloo was Lambeth Marsh and it was all marshy land and that's why when you looked at that map and you saw mostly fields it wasn't really built up until the 18th century beginning of the 19th century although there was settlement particularly down by the riverside and when it was built up it wasn't very long before industry came to the area in fact when William Blake who was a resident of nearby Lambeth was writing about his dark satanic mills he wasn't writing about the industrial north or the midlands he was writing about the dark satanic mills south of the river here in London near where he was living at the time so you had lots of industry particularly down by the riverside and then in the 1840s along came Waterloo Station which we can see now in between the buildings here and Waterloo Station never had its Grand Hotel. If you think of all our other mainline stations, you've always got the station and then you've got the Grand Hotel next to it. That was never Waterloo. And also, when you had the station here, you would have had all the smoke and all the pollution from the steam trains. So 
this wouldn't have been a desirable place to live. Most people wanted to move away from the areas where there were stations. But it was a very lively area. And as well as the market being here, when you had a shop that became empty, they used to have what were known as penny gaffs. And penny gaffs were places where you would go and pay a penny and you would watch a show or you might watch a film in the early days of films in the early 1900s. So you see, nothing's new. Today we talk about pop-up events taking place in empty shops. Well, they thought of it back in Victorian times, so that's not a new innovation. So it was all going on down here. And also the shops that were here, it's quite interesting because although we can see a few famous names, we can also see quite a few little independent shops like the vintage clothes shop that we're standing opposite at the moment. So you still will find a few independent shops here. And if you look at the lists of who was here back in the Victorian Edwardian period, it would have been a very practical shopping street, quite a few furniture dealers and also butchers and bakers and wheelwrights and those sorts of people here. So the market, you could go market shopping all the way along here. Then there was a market in the cut where the old Vic is today, which is no more. And then the market went all the way over southwards to the area of the Lambeth Walk, which had a busy market as well. So it was a really long market street. But of course, when the railways came along, the railway arches really divided up this area quite a bit. So when you were standing here saying we're on Westminster Bridge Road, but we can't see Westminster Bridge, that's because the railway arches were in the way. And uh, actually, there's something quite interesting under the railway arches around the corner that you might want to see that you might know about so shall we go and have a look let's do that okay let us go this way there's a a couple of bits i want to jump on while they're in view uh one of them is the the lambeth walk of course how does that phrase work what uh, what is it what's the song about doing the lambeth walk well it's from a show me and my girl but actually that's not that old in terms of london history because that was a show that was in the theatres back in the 1930s and the song comes from that in fact it was uh, revived back in the 80s emma thompson was in it and uh, that was the hit song from that doing the lambeth walk but uh, obviously there is a street called lambeth walk and as i mentioned that was also a really busy and thriving working class market street in that area it's very quiet if you go down there today mainly residential so uh, you don't have all the activity that you had today but when people think of Lambeth Walk they think of Cockney London and they think of that song. Well it must indeed have been noisy not merely because of all the uh, trade and commerce going on but if you've got wheelwrights in your street that's going to kick up a cacophony. Well, that's right, yes, so it would have been very busy. Now, uh... Oh, my, my, other, my other question before I forget. Um, this, this is a bit of a speed bowl from a, another show. I heard, this is on a market-related uh, theme. I yes. heard a possibly erroneous story that Bermondsey Street Market used to be able to fence 
stolen stuff legitimately. Do you know anything about that? Well, that is, that is true because Bermondsey Market, the market at Bermondsey Square, which also fairly recent in terms of London history in that it's after World War Two, it came here from an area just off the Caledonian Road where they had had a busy market. There was a cattle market there and then on Friday they would have a second-hand junk antique market. After the war, they weren't allowed back there some of the traders went to Portobello Road. Some of the traders went to Bermondsey Square, which the official name is the New Caledonian Market. And um, that market starts up very early in the morning, and that's when the dealers go along. Now, it's not the case anymore, but the idea was they were allowed to trade early in the morning when it was still dark, and if you bought stolen goods, you would not be prosecuted, but that's not the case any longer. So that's why people used to get there early in the morning, because there'd be no questions asked if they bought stolen goods. It's great to have you here to answer questions like that. Well, while we've been talking, we have transitioned down into an underpass and it is a kaleidoscope of graffiti down here. Yes, it's the Leak Street Tunnel. And a few years ago, the artist Banksy, he organised an exhibit here, an art exhibit. And ever since then, the Banksies of the future, in fact, anybody who fancies coming along can come and use their spray cans and create some artwork. Some of it's very good, some of it's less so. It might just be somebody writing their name. But the fact is that it's one of those areas where you are allowed to spray without getting into trouble and your artwork might not stay for long, not because the council are going to come and whitewash it, but because somebody else will come along and they'll create an artwork on top of that. Sometimes you will get special festivals, so they had one a few weeks ago where they had women street artists coming along and working here, but often it will just be people turning up ad hoc. They know it's somewhere where they can create street art without being bothered. And they also have theatre down here, so we're just going to walk down a little way down Leak Street, which can be accessed off of the road called Lambeth Marsh. And sometimes when people come down here, they might feel a little bit nervous because people well, associate yes, street I was, art. I was, I was going to ask you about yes. that. You're bringing a tour of, let's say, people who aren't at all familiar with London. This yes. has the potential to be quite a threatening-seeming environment. I think that if you were walking here on your own and you walk down here, you might feel that it seemed a bit threatening because some people associate graffiti with gangs with a bad area etc but then when people get down here and they actually realize what's going on the creativity that's happening here and that it's not at all threatening then they're okay and in fact that's one of the good things about people coming on tours that they'll maybe walk down little streets or alleyways that they wouldn't have gone down otherwise because maybe they'd have felt nervous walking down there on their own not because it was threatening but maybe it's a path along a canal or it's a place where there aren't many other people so if you're on your own you think hey wait a minute I better come back here with company but when you're with a group on a tour then you don't feel nervous and you'll feel well if the guide's taking us down here then it must be okay and as I was saying one of the things that you'll discover is that underneath the arches there there is a an entertainment venue an unusual entertainment venue it's called the vaults 
and it is used for pop-up theatre festivals. So in the same way that those Victorians were putting on their entertainments in the Penny Gaffs, now theatre makers, musicians, artists will discover all sorts of disused spaces and they will get the permission to use them for sometimes site-specific theatre. So they've had a festival that's been going on here for a couple of months. In fact, it's coming to an end here underneath the arches here and they've been putting on a production of Alice in Wonderland along here as well at the Vaults Festival. Listener, I should reassure you, by the way, because graffiti is one of those things that really doesn't translate well into words. <laughs> I mean, I'll try it now. There's a picture of a skull with a parrot near it, uh, you know. But what we can do instead is, of course, uh, make sure that you're kept uh, in the picture with Acast, which is the app that we're broadcasting uh, through. If you go to the Acast app, and listen to Londonist Out Loud through that, you'll see pictures popping up at various points, uh, hopefully to illustrate what we're talking about. So the thea- Yes, exactly. So the theatre events have been taken through, says there doesn't seem to be anything going on here today, but these doors open up, and then there'll be a whole big area under the railway arches here where they have a bar and they have galleries and exhibitions. Uh, the Old Vic Theatre were also using the tunnels here in this area and putting on some productions uh, here a few years ago as well, more experimental stuff that they wouldn't do in the Old Vic to bring in a new audience. So, it's got uh, great, great acoustics, hasn't it? It has, certainly. If you, if you know how to use them. Yes. Oh, fantastic uh, down here. Now, um, we will go back there, back to uh, the main road again to uh, rejoin our walk. But just look at this piece over here, you see. That's an example of uh, very high-quality artwork that we're looking at. So it's not just people coming along and scribbling their names by any means. Well, this is audio, people. We don't want to get too reliant on pictures. I am looking at uh, what seems to be a a dwarf. Think of a dwarf from The Hobbit. The beard and face of him kind of stuck in a Robocop sort of body armour, firing a laser pistol. It's bold and uh, exciting. One of the nice things, I think, about this is that street art has got very corporate, a lot of it that you see around Shoreditch and Spitalfields at the moment. The people will have signed it and they'll put the name of their website and often they have been commissioned to do a piece on the side of a building. So here it feels a lot more ad hoc and it isn't so corporate and organised. I don't know how much longer it will stay like this. I'm sure you'll come back in a few years' time and it probably will be very corporate and organised here. But at the moment, it's something uh, quite unusual. And as you can see, there's quite a few people photographing as we're walking along. So uh, people do know about the Leak Street tunnels. I rather like the impermanence and democratic aspect of street graffiti you know if it's if it's a good piece people will respect it and leave it alone and it can stay up there a little bit longer yes that's right but this it's changed quite a lot since i was last here and that was only a couple of months ago londonist out loud is sponsored by audible to claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles try the audible service on 30-day free trial Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. 
You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. My guest is Diane Burstein, and we are just turning left off Bayliss Road. I can see uh, on the other side of the street the Old Vic uh, High Society currently playing. That's right. Now, the Old Vic has a very interesting history. It's the second oldest theatre building in London. So the oldest theatre building is the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, built in 1811. And this one was opened in 1818. But it wasn't called the Old Vic in those days. It was the Royal Coburg Theatre after Leopold of Saxe-Coburg, who was married to the Princess of Wales, Princess Charlotte, who was George IV's daughter. Later it was renamed after Princess Victoria and the Old Vic was a sort of nickname that stuck but it did go through a period in the late 19th and early 20th century as the Royal Victoria Coffee Hall with no mention of the word theatre. Now the reasoning behind that is that when Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. And it was a theatre, like a lot of theatres in quite poor districts. It was musical variety and melodrama and the audiences were notoriously badly behaved and rowdy mainly because they'd been having an awful lot to drink and so in the late 19th century a woman called Emma Cons took over the running of this theatre and Emma Cons was a deeply religious woman and against the evil of drink so the first thing she did was take all the alcohol out of the bar and then what she did is she renamed the theatre the Royal Victoria Coffee Hall the emphasis on coffee that's what you'd get to drink there or tea and she also introduced an element of education because she started adult education classes here and if we move on into the early 20th century you could come and learn literature with Virginia Woolf here or you could come and learn music with the composer Gustav Holst but 
the uh, classes were struggling at one point, and so a wealthy man, a cotton merchant called Samuel Morley, he gave money to bail out the adult education, and that college that was founded here still exists, but round the corner in Lambeth called Morley College, but they moved out of the old Vic. Now, Emma Cons died, and her niece, who'd been helping her run the theatre, took over. And she was called Lillian Bayliss, so Bayliss Road here is named after her. And Lillian Bayliss was a real character, and she was the one who put the Old Vic, as it was now known, on the map. Because she thought, just because this is a poor area, it doesn't mean that people can't have high-quality entertainment. So she brought in opera and ballet and Shakespeare. And then she went to look for another similar area north of the river, which she found in Islington, which in those days was a poor working-class area. And in Islington, she took over the Sadler's Wells Theatre and eventually the opera and ballet went off to Sadler's Wells and the drama stayed here. And Lillian Bayliss, when she was running the theatre company, she ran it with a rod of iron, but was a real character, as I said. So, for example, while you were watching a play, suddenly you'd hear this sizzling noise because she would be cooking her supper in a little room right next to the stage and people could smell bacon, they could smell fish and if you hadn't eaten before the show, you'd really be hungry while you were watching it. And during her time, you had all the great names of the mid 20th century, early to mid 20th century. So we're talking about Laurence Olivier, we're talking about John Gielgud, we're talking about Ralph Richardson. And because Lillian was a religious woman, uh, it was actually Olivier who wrote about this. When he went to see her to ask for a raise, she would say, Well, come back tomorrow because I've got to consult with God. And of course, you can guess what the answer is. The next day, Olivia went back and he asked, Well, what about that, my raise? And her reply was that God had said no. So uh, (laughs) you don't argue with God, do you? Exactly. So she carried on running it until her death. And then in the 1960s, a lot of those actors stayed when the National Theatre Company was formed. They were having their theatre built over on the South Bank. But while that was all being planned and designed and discussed, they started off here in 1963 with Peter O'Toole in Hamlet. And you would have seen people like O'Toole in the leading roles. In the supporting roles, you'd have the big names of recent years like Michael Gambon and Derek Jacobi and in the box office so not even on the stage was Simon Callow and eventually they went off to the National not so far away from here and of course recently we've had Kevin Spacey as the artistic director has done extremely well he's just left new artistic director Matthew Walker's coming in here so They have to put on really good things here because it's a bit out of the way. It's not the West End. So people have to want to come here to the Old Vic because they've seen good reviews, which they normally do. And just up the road from here is the Young Vic Theatre. And that started off as a project of the Old Vic 
back in the 1940s as a theatre workshop. Then it became a theatre that was aimed at entertaining young people, moved up to its present position in 1970 to a temporary building. And if you stand opposite that building, although it's been rebuilt since 1970, you will still see that where you go into the box office, just behind the neon sign, Young Vic, it says Wilson Brothers, because originally that entrance where the box office is was a butcher's shop. So you'll go in there through the butcher's shop with the green and white tiled walls there and that was a terrace of shops and the rest of the terrace was badly bombed the butcher's shop is all that remains and it's been incorporated into the theatre which is great and of course the Young Fix one of our leading uh, smaller theatres today so this is a real area for theatre and for entertainment but I want to show you something that's behind the old Vic that most theatre goers wouldn't notice Let's go and take a look as we move across there both of these venues are on The Cut what's with the name? The Cut, it was literally cutting through the marsh, that's how we get the uh, name, so they were cutting through the marshy land when they created uh, the road here, and once again you could see the railway bridges straight ahead, they cut all the way through the top of the road uh, as well here. We're moving down Weber Street now. That's right. So I want to take you into Ufford Street to show you some of the little houses behind the old Vic, which most people wouldn't see. Because when you come to the theatre, I think everybody's so busy buying their programme, ordering their drinks for the interval, meeting their friends, that they don't have time to really have a walk around and notice the environs. But just here, behind the old Vic, it's a very residential area. You've got lots of these yellow brick blocks of flats And the land here, at one time, a lot of land in London belonged to the church. And a lot of the land here still belongs to the church commissioners. And, of course, the connection here in the Waterloo and Lambeth area is that down by the river, you've got Lambeth Palace, which is the Archbishop of Canterbury's home. So because of that connection with the Archbishop, who'd been here since medieval times, you have a lot of church land. Now, when we come into the late 19th and early 20th century, this is a very poor area, and the church commissioners who were then the ecclesiastical commissioners are wanting to clear the slums and build decent housing for what the Victorians and Edwardians called the deserving poor. And usually what they built were blocks of flats known as tenement blocks, what we'd call high-density housing today. But the houses that we'll see across the road in Ufford Road are really different. They don't look like the typical houses that you would find in London, high-density houses being built for the poor people of London. They're on a smaller scale, uh, two stories. You usually see um, two little doors side by side, so sometimes they were divided into what we'd call masonettes today and these 
were managed by a woman called Octavia Hill, who was a great oh, the National Trust. That's right, that's what most people know her for. One of the three founders of the National Trust, but also a great friend of Emma Cons, who was that woman who managed the Old Vic and turned the Old Vic into the coffee theatre. And Octavia Hill wasn't rich herself, but she had a lot of wealthy friends. And what they would do is they would listen to her ideas about housing and then they would give her money for her housing projects. And she thought if people were going to behave themselves well, pay their rent on time and be good tenants, don't stick them in a block of flats, but give them a nice little cottage with roses round the door and window boxes, just as we can see across the road. And then they'll look after them. And this is exactly what the tenants did here. They paid their rent on time, they looked after them, and in return, Octavia Hill would help them out if they had any problems. So she was a very good person to have, and she'd be the interface between the ecclesiastical commissioners and the tenants here. So if ever you're walking through an inner London area, particularly here south of the river, there are some in Woolworth, there are some in Southwark, there are also some uh, over on the north side of the river in Lisson Grove near Paddington, and you suddenly come across amongst lots of blocks of flats these nice little cottages built either in the late 19th century, these were early 20th century, 1901, then you know that Octavia Hill probably had something to do with the design. And of course people criticised her because they thought, well, there should be higher density housing. But really what she said has proved to be right because there were always good tenants in her houses. With the words of the election campaign ringing in our ears, when you talk about the deserving poor, it's difficult not to think of hard-working families. We are supporting hard-working families. This is really concrete, well, bricks and mortar support for exactly that group. Oh, exactly. It's the same sort of thing. I mean, nowadays people might talk about housing key workers... But without getting too political, with these, uh, some years ago there was a big campaign about 12, 14 years ago because the ecclesiastical commissioners decided that they wanted to start charging market rents. And now, whereas in the past you would find people here on subsidised rents, nowadays you won't. So, uh, of course, this is causing uh, some of the housing problems that we have today is that there aren't so many places like this for poorer people to live in. Well, we're tight on time, as is always the case, and we're going to get along to the next point in our tour. Before we do, though, um, I asked you, Diane, to have a look on audible.com and see if there's anything Waterloo or Lambeth-related that you might recommend. What did you come up with? Well, there's a new book uh, about Waterloo and the Duke of Wellington by Bernard Cornwell that's being advertised on Audible Books at the moment, and uh, that looks like it's going to be a very good read. I believe that he wrote the sharp adventure stories that were dramatised for television. So I thought, well, that would be a very appropriate one to talk about as we're here in the Waterloo area today. Quite so, and I'm quite sure that if you wanted to lay your hands on that, you might do so by getting your free uh, 30-day trial of Audible and getting a free book into the bargain. Uh, to sign up, all you need to do is go to audible.com forward slash Londonist and click through. And, and do do that, by the way. It actually supports this show. 
Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at Londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. Just come under the uh, railway arches. We've passed Cons Street, a name that, uh, if you've been paying attention, will ring out in your ear. And the buildings, as we come up Windmill Walk here, these are gorgeous. Onto a film set. Yes, it's Victoriana, isn't it? And in fact, well, it's a little bit before Victorian. The houses here were built, a lot of them in the Georgian period, 1820s. Then in the streets going back here, we're in Rupel Street, Whittlesea Street and Theed Street were a little bit later, mid-19th century. I'm looking down, long brown brick terraces, simple brick arches over the doors and each door uh, painted a different colour. And if you would have come here actually about this time last year, I was walking through here with one of my tour groups and it was if we were back in the 1960s because there are buildings on the corner that obviously used to be shops that have been turned into houses but one of them was turned back into a shop a hairdresser's shops with all the 1960s prices advertising perms and uh, shampoo and set and all the hairstyles you've had in the 60s because they were filming a new film that hasn't come out yet called Legend about the craze with Tom Hardy in which he's going to play both of the Cray twins and there were lots of people in early 1960s clothes and you could see why they had chosen Rupel Street because if you take all the modern cars away, paint over the double yellow lines, you're back either in Victorian London or you can make it look like London in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 60s etc. And this street in fact these little streets are real survivors because so much of this area was either bombed or demolished to make way for new estates. The area was very badly bombed because you're not far from Parliament and you're near to the river, of course, and the railway station. By the river, you had all the industry. Now, the story of Rupel Street, you'll also see the name Rupel if you go further south of the river to Streatham because there was a family called the Rupels and they made their money from rubbish. So you had dust heaps here and people would sometimes throw away quite valuable things so they were scrap metal dealers the Rupels and they made an absolute fortune and it was John Rupel who built the houses here and his grandson William Rupel ended up going to prison because he forged a false will for his father leaving the money to him when really his brother should have inherited so there was a bit of a scandal surrounding that family now when these houses were originally built when they started to build here in the early 19th century these were aimed at the working people and the people who lived here They weren't part of a housing association like the Octavia Hill houses that we saw just now. But the people here would have rented their properties and they would have done all sorts of jobs. For example, I did have a woman on one of my tours down here a few months ago who said her great-grandmother had lived in this street and her great-grandmother had a stall in the cut when the market was there and her great-grandfather had been a blacksmith. And other people would have worked at the lead smelters, the iron foundries. Down by the river, you had 
breweries. There was the big Red Lion brewery on the site where the Royal Festival Hall is today. A lot of railway workers, a lot of people who worked in the printing industry. We had uh, people like HMSO and uh, WH Smith who used to have big buildings here. There was quite a lot of printing that went on here. So all working people. But if you come down these streets between about 5.30 and 7 at night. There's a stream of people walking down here on their way down to Waterloo Station and they're walking here from their offices. And in recent years, not here anymore, but Sainsbury's used to have their head office here. You used to have IPC Publishing here. You still do have the London studios where a lot of our television programmes are made. So you had people working in the media, people working in business, people with money who snap up these houses in 70s, 80s when they could be bought for very little money and nowadays of course a working man's house here we would pay getting on for a million pounds for one of these if we looked in the estate agent's window that's what they would be costing but people love them because it's a little bit of Victorian London preserved here in Waterloo. Moving the calendar forward just a little bit to those people who are doing good work around the turn of the last century Uh, you mentioned the phrase the deserving poor I wonder what made somebody deserving we know what makes them poor. You had to have a regular job so if you worked in one of the factories or breweries around here if you worked for the railway and you got a regular salary and you didn't have a prison record and also you could prove you'd had your inoculations against all those terrible diseases that people used to get in Victorian Britain then you would qualify and then you had to behave yourself keep the place clean and pay your rent on time itinerant workers like dock workers would find it hard to qualify qualify because they didn't get a regular salary. Other people who would find it hard were the market workers because the market workers sometimes were seen as itinerant but mainly because there'd be lots of rules and regulations. So say if you go into one of those blocks of flats that were run by the Peabody Trust. George Peabody was an American philanthropist who left money for housing in the 1860s. You will see rules and regulations and a lot of them are to do with not keeping animals. Well, if you were a market worker, you had to have your donkey and cart to transport your goods to market. So that was no good. It wouldn't work for you, all those rules and regulations. So basically, it was a steady job that paid a regular wage and you hadn't got into trouble with the law. You were well behaved. So in some respects, then, this was really enabling people to climb from the working class into the middle class. Well, not really. You were still renting. You wouldn't be buying your own place. So you'd still be considered to be the working classes. But what it enabled you to have was um, many of these places, indoor toilets for the first time. Running water, you didn't have to go out to a pump in the street and risk catching cholera. You still didn't have a bathroom, probably. It would still be tin bath in front of the fire or out to the local public baths. But at least you had running water. You could keep yourself clean. So it was generally better living conditions. There might be a little yard at the back, not really a full-blown garden, but somewhere where you could go out at the back that was your own little space. So they were a great improvement on what you would have had before, which 
would have been insanitary, maybe bugs and uh, not very well kept. So these were places where there were certain standards that were kept up. And organisations like Peabody and some of the others were very good at managing their properties. So you considered yourself lucky. It wasn't necessarily a step up into another class, though. Well, it was certainly improvement on the previous conditions. And I I think a a sign that that improvement has continued and a sign of where it's gotten to is that that last vehicle that you heard drive past us was a Bentley. That's right. This this road where we are now, Whittlesea Street, Rupel Street, these areas, these were not built by a housing association like the Octavia Hill houses. So these would have been private landlords and these would now all be privately owned rather than rented and generally speaking, uh, owned by people. Well, if you bought one today, you'd have to be quite well to do. Well, I don't want to revisit the despondency of our housing specials, so perhaps that's a, a road we better not venture down. Sadly, we've ventured down the maximum number of roads that we can fit into today's podcast. Diane, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you for taking us around Lambeth and Waterloo. Thank you for inviting me. And you're so generous with your knowledge. Even when we're off mic, you're telling me everything there is to know about places we're passing. How can people get onto your tours? Well, they can have a look at my website, which is secretlondonwalks.co.uk. They can email me, Diane, that's D-I-A-N-E, at secretlondonwalks.co.uk. Also, they can even telephone me, 208 Four four five zero one five nine, and I do mostly walks for groups, but I do have a mailing list whereby individual members of the public can be on my mailing list and hear about tours and visits to places that aren't normally open to the public. So do get in touch. Time, Bursty. Thanks very much. You're welcome. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Diane Burstein. Thanks to, to Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? 
Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 